Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics Part 5 Going Ape Hello and welcome to the fifth part of the podcast miniseries, 80 Years of DC Comics, presented by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and the purpose of these 12 episodes is to showcase comic books and comic book genres that DC Comics has produced in its 80-year history, but are not as recognizable or celebrated as their superheroes or stories that are not as widely celebrated as what usually winds up on a top 10 list. Last time around, I took a look at an issue of Legends of the DC Universe. This time around, I'm going to turn my attention to something that's not necessarily a genre, but is a type of character, and a type of character that DC has a long legacy with, and that is talking apes. That's right, if there's one DC is good at, it's making gorillas, chimps, and monkeys walk, talk, help, and sometimes even menace human beings. I have a classic story from the 1950s and three stories from the 1980s, so stick around as we go ape. Hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jif S. Fishman, Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside, sipping our brandy, and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith, Stan Lee, and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or the equally important bout of the Snorks? versus the Smurfs, and of course the Titanic duel between Archie and Jimmy Olsen. And you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this. But I always thought Transformers fans were intelligent and literate, so they should see that Galactus has to be the winner. Like, he's hungry. Oh, I'm so (laughs) hungry, I'm gonna get weaker and, and, and... And Reed Richards is going to be able to beat me. I don't know anything about Rob other than uh, he was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, it's, I mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the out of the Silac. You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put back in it because he's a bitch. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! 
So won't you join us for some witty discourse, a fine snuff, and a tincture of sherry as we debate over these all-important matters, here only on Comic Book Fight Club. You can find the show at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comicbookfightclub. My four stories this month come from two different sources. The first of which has been a great, trustworthy source for this podcast so far, and that is the trade paperback, The Greatest 1950s Stories Ever Told. This one's called Gorilla City. It was featured in Congo Bill Number 6, which came out on April 21st, 1955, and was the June-July 1955 issue. There's no writer credited, but our artist is the late, great Nick Cardi. The first page is a reproduction of the issue's cover, and it shows a gorilla sitting behind a desk telling Congo Boo and Janu the Jungle Boy that it's too late, and they must realize that resistance is futile, while Bill is amazed that the gorilla can talk. Our copy says, "There, this is a story that has never been told before, and as you shall see why, will never be told again. It springs from deepest, darkest Africa, from where so many tales of strange adventure have sprung. But none before, none yet to come, will equal in bizarre adventure this fantastic tale in which Congo Bill and Janu the Jungle Boy find themselves prisoners in Gorilla City. We flash back to when Bill and Jana were exploring the jungle and came across a group of animals that Bill says are frightened by a shooting star. Jano says he doesn't understand and they set up camp for the night. The next morning they are surrounded by gorillas who rough them up and tie them up, taking them to Gorilla City, a walled city in the middle of the jungle where they not only rule but can speak and have technology. They're taken to the leader of the gorillas who talks to them, explaining that they understand and speak English plainly. Before they are interrupted by an alarm clock, and the leader tells an underling that he wanted it set for 4 a.m., not 4 p.m. And the gorillas repair Congo Bill's gun, giving it back to him because they realize that he is not a threat. The gorillas give Congo Bill and Jano their own guarded hut, and the two speculate how the gorillas came to talk and act the way they do. Bill has heard of this happening after A-bomb tests, but that can't be because there were no tests around here. Janu thinks they may be trained, but Bill dismisses that and speculates that possibly they were created by some sort of scientific experiment. He doesn't get to expand upon his thoughts as he's taken to the leader who says they are in his village at the moment because they are looking for a lost artifact that contains the stories of the gorilla's entire history. He mentions that Bill and Janu both know the jungle well, but if they find it, they have to be careful because it's radioactive. Bill says a Geiger counter will help and he takes it with him into the jungle. They find the box, and they say goodbye. Bill deduces that those gorillas aren't gorillas after all, but beings from another world who simply looked like gorillas. They head toward the village, but discover that it's too late to talk to the gorillas about it, and they see their rocket taking off for home. They see a gorilla and think it's one that was left behind, but then they realize it's an actual gorilla, and they leave, saying they will not tell anyone about this because, well, nobody will believe them. 
I decided to pick this story for this episode because I had a copy of it. <laughs> and it was the oldest gorilla story I'd ever read. Later on in the DCU, there would be, of course, plenty of gorillas, many of which, uh, many of which these stories involve the Flash. At a glance at the title, it sounds like this might tie into the gorilla city of those Flash comics, but this unfortunately does not, and is simply a story about Congo Bill and his Jungle Boy assistant finding a village of gorillas and giving us the added twist of them actually being aliens who simply look like gorillas. You know, because it's a comic book in the 1950s. I will admit that was a weird twist. I figured that they adventured beyond whatever their real city was in order to find that time capsule of sorts, but at least Bill knows that it's completely unbelievable and therefore isn't going to tell anybody. And I think that's really the most important thing to say about it. Cardi's art is nice. It's not as gorgeous as his 60s Teen Titans stuff. And honestly, the whole character of Jenner the Jungle Boy is one of those outdated stereotype-based characters who's in 2015 is incredibly cringeworthy. I don't know if I'd seek this out for anything more than an artifact, to be honest. What I would seek out is Secret Origins number 40, which is cover dated May of 1989, but came out on March 21st, 1989. The text above the title on the cover screams, Because I demanded it! And the cover's sidebar promises the origins of Gorilla Grodd, Kongorilla, and Detective Chimp, all three of whom are on the cover with Detective Chimp crying after Grodd has smacked his hat off and Kongorilla coolly riding a motorcycle behind him. In the background are more monkeys and dinosaurs and this promises to be a fun romp with a banana in the UPC box and a blurb asking, why is this chimp crying? See the letters page for details. So yes, there are three stories in this one. I'm going to cover all three. First, first up is Gorillas in Our Midst, The Secret Origin of Gorilla City, which is written by Carrie Bates and Greg Weissman, penciled by Carmine Infantino, and inked by Mike DiCarlo. Augustin Moss was the letterer, Shelley Iber was the colorist, Mark Wade was your editor, and Gorilla City is credited as having been created by John Broom and Carmine Infantino. A spaceship crashes in the jungle. A group of gorillas finds it. Inside is a small alien. They take the alien out of the spaceship and, cr and cradle it like a baby. Inside the ship is also a crystal, which one of them picks up and examines. He tosses it aside, and a moment later, several other gorillas gather around it, all touching it. It then begins to emit a crazy amount of light, and the gorillas start running away. Fast forward to 1873 in a hospital where Sir Albert Wesley, who is bound to a chair, is telling a reporter the story of his encounter with Gorilla City. In darkest Africa, my partner and I sought our fortunes. Our guides had abandoned us, and the jungle revealed its own natural dangers. But it was of the unnatural that we should have been afraid. The unnatural sight of a hidden city. Not simply a city, but a glorious metropolis, beside which even our own London pales. It was still under construction, yet its architects and masons were more miraculous than the gleaming structures themselves. For its builders were a type of beast that many believed to be nothing more than a bizarre myth. It was a city of beasts, a city of gorillas. Before we had a chance to catch our breath, Hughes and I were discovered and dragged before a strange temple. Or was it a prison? Our captor spoke, and though his language was guttural and foreign, his meaning was clear enough. We entered. What we see is 
the alien that the gorillas had found addresses them. He says, welcome man, Wesley, welcome man, Hughes, for I am from the cosmos. I am the prisoner slash God. 11 revolutions, years have passed my, since my accident slash arrival. 11 since the evolution slash identity caster exploded slash enhanced my apes slash worshippers. 10 since I began their instruction slash naming. 9 since they destroyed my vessel slash escape. From the cosmos I am the prisoner slash God. Now you join slash help me. He was part child, part wizened elder. Though his language contained only the oddest of sounds, his tale registered clearly in his mind. Instant before enhancement slash explosion, two concentration slash beams were released. One straight slash pure struck Soliver slash King Gorilla, but the other warp slash dangerous. Soliver does not know about. Happened before naming slash identification, so I too am ignorant slash uninformed. I fear slash search among the apes slash workers, but warped one evade slash drains my power with his mind slash force. Jealous of my throne slash cell, he will kill me. You are men slash infidels. Together we will escape this city slash execution. Gorillas escorted us from the temple to a shining palace. Our language was unintelligible to our guards. So Hughes and I spoke freely about the astounding events that had transpired, that continue to transpire. We were seated before an ape so grand, so royal and bearing, I knew it must be Solivar, the Gorilla King. Oh, if only we could understand his words. And then Solivar begins speaking English. And he starts talking about how Mentor, he learned of your English language and benevolent motives by reading her thoughts. And he tra- he transferred that information to his assistant who passed it on to him. And then all they knew of us came from the little creature himself. Our escape plan was safe. He says, you are both safe in Gorilla City. We are a curious species, species by nature, so you will be studied, not harmed. You have my vow, and soon we'll reveal our city, our species to the world, and perhaps Hughes and Wesley will be our ambassadors. Kios, his assistant, showed us to our quarters, which just good rest in English in our own language. This was not a night for rest. So they break in, steal the alien child. And as they're stealing it, all of a sudden, Hughes gets Hughes gets attacked by some sort of like, um, it looks like he's got a really, really bad headache. And Hughes says, well, don't don't worry about it. Forgive me, forgive me. And Wesley's saying, there's nothing to forgive. So he says, so we fled, protected by from their eyes, their, my mentor's invisibility. We reached the edge of the jungle, but we were safe. And mentor, the... Uh, the alien says, escape slash trick is a success. Warped killer slash ape reveals his mind slash force. I know name slash face. And so the the um, the evil gorilla is the one who was giving uh, Hughes the headache. And all of a sudden, Hughes pulls out his gun. And after Wesley says, we must tell Solovar, he screams no and shoots the alien. He screams death to mentor, death to Solovar. And Wesley punches him and says, have you gone mad? He says, I have subdued him, but it was too late. The gorillas were upon us. They had heard Hughes' madness. Hughes is saying, forgive me. Somewhere Hughes knows I have forgiven him. The real question is if he can ever forgive himself. The apes surround him and they basically beat Hughes down. He says, such is my story, Mr. Mr. Barwick. How do you credit me as, as liar or madman? I've long stopped hoping for anyone to see the truth.
Mr. Barwick, who was interviewing him and another doctor, leave the room and basically saying, yeah, I'm not telling anybody this because nobody's going to believe it. And he says, you know, I'm sorry your visit's been a waste. Um, here's the complete opposite of your poor Wesley. His mind is perfectly lucid, but his body is horribly grotesque. Would you like to meet the elephant man? We flash over to Gorilla City, and it's, and Solivar is uh, being told that the aura screen has been activated, and the city is now invisible to outsiders. He says, fellow gorillas, we are agreed. The human species has proven to be unpredictable, deceitful, and murderous. For our own protection, Gorilla City will remain forever cloaked to human eyes and forever safe from evil. Now, before I get to my review... Each of these stories has a corresponding text piece on the letters page, giving it a little bit of background on the character or characters and their roles in the greater world of DC Comics. So here's the first two. First, the secrets behind the goofy cover. These things just don't happen by accident, you know. Back in the late 50s and early 1960s, in the day when we really thought we had the vaguest idea of what the hell we really saw a comic book other than Wolverine... There were unwritten laws about what to put on a cover. Gorillas, for example, we must have published 200 feet covers featuring gorillas, probably more. In the 1970s, we even published three comics called Superhero Heroes Battle Super Gorillas. Two issues of DC Special and the one shot really called Superheroes Battle Super Gorillas. What else? Well, dinosaurs are popular in sold covers. We did seven years of Dinosaur Island, the war that time forgot, and Star Spangled War Stories. We must have had a good reason. Motorcycles sold and fires. Fires sold, which is why the first issue showcased DC's 1950s-60s anthology comic featured Fireman Farrell. Purple covers did well. It did covers with questions to the reader on them. Who built a giant statue of Batman overnight and why? LL, why did these initials spell death for the Man of Steel? And last but not least, then publisher Carmine Infantino swore up and down that if you showed your hero crying, well, that made a cover. So when you make up a departure so big as to fill an entire issue of Secret Origins with the gorillas in lieu of superheroes, you load the odds as best you can. It took a team of artists weeks to, of dedicated labor to craft this, pu- craft this puppy. Bernie Moreau, Ty Templeton, and even Ty's fiance Lisa Rediger, pooled their talents to provide a fistful of cover sketches, after which cover artist Bill Ray ended up marching to the beat of his own drummer and turning in the marvelous final draft based on his own sketch. All the more amazing considering that I'm sure Bill to this day doesn't get the joke. And that's that. Remember, you won't be seeing a cover quite like this ever again, unless I can dredge up three more gorillas to put in this book next year. The secrets behind the origins of Gorilla City. Both Gorilla City and its deadliest inhabitant, Gorilla Grodd, made their debut in Flash number 106, April May 1959, when Grodd came to Central City, USA, in pursuit of Gorilla City's leader, Solovar. Solivar, it was revealed, had been captured by humans during an expeditionary trip he made away from Gorilla City and was forced to act like a dumb animal rather than arouse the suspicion of curious humans who might investigate the origins of an intelligent ape and thus discover the secret African city. When Grodd found Solivar, he telepathically stole him from the power of force of mind, the secret of controlling others by mental domination. Grodd then returned to Gorilla City with the aim of organizing a battalion of native gorilla soldiers to, with which to conquer the world. However, he didn't count on Solivar's escaping captivity and bringing the Flash to Africa to thwart Grodd, which he did with relative ease. But Grodd was merely bowed, not broken, and he returned to battle the Scarlet Speedster time and again, becoming a mainstay in the Flash over the years with his nefarious schemes. In the meantime, Solivar revealed the 
secret of Gorilla City to Earth's people and campaigned to have the city accepted as an independent nation by the UN. Later, he realized the dangers of a national exposure and with the Flash's help, erased the knowledge of Gorilla City from all Earth minds, save for a handful of superheroes. Since the Flash's death, Gorilla City has not played a major role in the DC Universe, and Grodd's appearances have been rare. However, the Sinister Simeon is slated to turn up once more quite soon, even sooner than you'd suspect. On some level, well, the cover does promise Gorilla Grodd, and it does deliver Gorilla Grodd, because Gorilla Grodd is obviously the evil ape that the alien talks about. But, it's Gorilla City is kind of our real origin story here, of course. Aliens are involved, although this time an alien is a source of intelligence to the apes as opposed to being the apes being intelligent aliens themselves. Carrie Bates not having a whole issue to work with gives us a tight origin story that is told in a few silent pages and then expands upon that to explain why it is that Gorilla City is always hidden from human eyes. The two explorers are just as bad as Congo Bill and Janu, although... They allow themselves to be manipulated by the alien until one of them finally turns on him, or at least as far as he knows, but then again, he's being controlled by Gorilla Grodd. And everything that happens serves as a nice explanation as to why Gorilla City is forever masked from the prying eyes of man. Salivar is a character that I first met in Crisis on Infinite Earths and didn't know much about beyond this, so it's pretty interesting to see how he became the intelligent leader of Gorilla City that he was, and how they used the alien to create the civilization itself. It's even a little ironic that an ape populace that was always more reluctant to behave like humans than humans do is keeping an alien captive and taking advantage of what it has to offer, just like your average human civilization actually would. The art? Well, this is Infantino at the tail end of his career, and it definitely shows. It's not his greatest, although I will say that Mike DiCarlo on the inking is more than serviceable, and I think it's because of him that Infantino's figures don't seem to look like they've been drawn with a straight edge, and everything else has a little bit more definition to it than some of what I've seen in his Larry latter-day Barry Allen flash work. The art fits the story very well because this does read like a late Bronze Age comic as opposed to something from the new post-crisis DC universe. The origin of Kongorilla, on the other hand, has a little bit of a horror element to it. It's called The Legend of Kongorilla. The credits are as follows. Script Tom Joyner, art Fred Butler and Kez Wilson, letters Janice Chang, color Tatiana Wood, editor Mark Wade. We open on a fiery wreck. A mysterious hand wears a ring and the narration box suggests that the person or thing wearing that ring doesn't know what's been happening. Near the remains of the car are some dead bodies and a man named Kruger who yells at our narrator in a mixture of German and English that he has done enough killing. Our narrator then sees his reflection and screams. He is a bright, golden gorilla. We flash back to June 1958. It's the night that Kowalo, a tribesman in Rwanda, and one of the narrator's oldest friends has died. Dr. Kruger, who was a German missionary at the time, did what he could to help him, and our narrator is Congo Bill, the great white hunter. Bill tells a villager that it's okay to pair Kowalo's body and heads out to the hut, they were in with Kruger, telling him that they can analyze the bullet that killed Koolo in order to figure out who killed him. Kruger something, says something about how toward the end Koolo was talking about the tale of the ring. Bill explains that the golden gorilla is their totem, and the legend is that rubbing the ring causes you to exchange minds with a golden ape. 
Kruger thinks is unbelievable, and Bill makes some weird crack about Auschwitz and how that was unbelievable too, and Kruger's like, uh, not every summit is a Nazi? Bill then thinks that Kruger is right, however, about Coelho. He was definitely delirious, and unfortunately he's also wrong. The ballistics report on the bullet comes back. It's from an old Russian army rifle. Bill concludes that someone is running guns in from Zaire through Albert National Park. He and Nsolo head out and eventually come upon a cave. That's the second and third mistake he admits to making as Bill heads into said cave and Nsolo throws a grenade in there, knocking Bill out and trapping him inside. He wakes up some time later, lights a match, and discovers his predicament. Then he remembers the ring and what Kowolo told him about it. Rub the ring and he'll enter the gorilla body. He does so, and suddenly he's on the outside of the cave, looking through the eyes of a golden gorilla, and decides to go searching for the cave where his human body is trapped. He comes upon some armed men, among them Nisolo, who he realizes is a gorilla leader, and also realizes that Nisolo wants to disrupt the peace talks to end the country's civil war. The men set up an ambush, but then become victims of an ambush themselves as Kongorilla attacks and begins tearing them apart first using his hands and then even picking up a machine gun and shooting at the gorillas. This brings us back to our opening scene where the gorilla is confronting Kruger. He screams and then heads off to find the cave, not interested in revenge anymore. The rest is just a fog, he says, observing the ebb and flow of Africa's mystery from the surface had taught me nothing of its depths. The river's current has picked me up and swept me up far and away from the safety of the shore. I am lost in the mystery and can take it anywhere. And here's what the text piece in the back of the book has to say about the secret origin of Congorilla. Fooled you, didn't we? You thought we were doing the origin of Congorilla just to make fun of it, didn't you? Well, ha ha. It's been a part of this editor's hidden agenda for some time now to show it what a strip about a guy who swaps consciousness with an ape doesn't necessarily have to be goofy. As a matter of fact, with the right amount of jungle noir feel, it can be downright creepy. Before there ever was a Congorilla, there was Congo Bill. Believe it or not, there was a time when a comic book series about safari hunters were really quite popular. DC's leading great white hunter was, of course, none other than Bill himself, last name never ever revealed. Safari chief hunting expert, unofficial ambassador to the tribes of darkest Africa, an all-around great guy. Debuting in Action Comics number 30, 37 in June of 1941, Congo Bill held this place as a backup feature all through the 1940s and 1950s. He was even one of five DC characters adapted into movie serial format, along with Superman, Batman, Vigilante, and Hop Harrigan during the 40s, and the heyday of the serials. Bill even enjoyed seven issues of his own comic, August-September 1954 through August-September of 1955. But the tale of the Golden Gorilla is, con- is another matter entirely. Action Comics number 248 first told the story of Congorilla and a sequence of events followed loosely by our tale in this issue. Congo Bill was given a mystic ring by a native named Kowolo, and though he thought its properties just a myth, was given an opportunity to discover the secret of mind transfer with the Golden Gorilla when trapped in a cave-in. There was no warring tribal factions and political intrigue in the 1959 story. However, there, Congo Bill Congorilla was held up from freeing his human body by a trope of science, troop of science fiction filmmakers who marveled at the gorilla's human-like qualities and captured it for a short time. But here, and I only bring things up like this because you're a captive audience, is today's piece of completely mind-numbing trivia. The Golden Gorilla itself actually appeared two years earlier in Action Number 224, 
January of 57, when he was befriended by Congo Bill and subsequently saved the hunter from a couple of life-threatening jams. Four years later, Congo Bill met another gorilla named Congorilla with a K. Coincidence or something more? At any rate, as an action backup, Congorilla didn't last terribly long. His final appearance was in issue number 261. Editor Mort Weisinger transferred the feature to Adventure Comics, where it appeared in issues 270 to 281 and number 283. The Golden Gorilla made a couple of appearances in other Superman family titles in the 60s. He helped the Man of Steel in action number 280, and Superman's pal Jimmy actually swapped minds with Congorilla in Jimmy Olsen number 49 and number 86 before fading into oblivion to be resurrected here in Secret Origins, the book that constantly preys on forgotten heroes from the, from the land of Limbo. Now, prior to reading this story and the Congo Bill story from the greatest 50 stories ever told, I wasn't familiar with this character, and Congo Bill and Congo Rilla were characters that honestly hadn't seen much publication, as mentioned in the text piece since the Hades of the Jungle Adventure stories of the 50s. There was a series from about 1992, but it wasn't anything of great acclaim. In fact, the only time I'd ever encountered Congorilla was in the 1992's Who Binder edition, where Congorilla had an entry, but that entry was actually part of the update that came out in 1992, 1993 or so, that kind of coincided with that series. Here's what the history part of the Congorilla entry has to say. As a young man of 22, he was just another would-be sportsman, a naive dilettante who dreamed of becoming an old-fashioned big game hunter. But the jungle changes a man. By the time he reached his 30s, he was known as worldwide as Congo Bill, the most famous white man in Africa. A predator by no one's definition, Bill built his reputation instead as a naturalist and trapper who protected the fundamental beauty of the wilderness and respected its inhabitants, be they human or animal. His only companion on this groundbreaking expeditions was Janu, an orphaned, quote, jungle boy, to whom Bill served as a guardian and father figure. Over the years, Bill earned the respect of all the jungle's tribesmen, though none care for him as deeply as Chief Kowolo, a tribal witch doctor and old friend who on his deathbed gifted Bill with the greatest secret of his people, the magic ring of the golden gorilla. Kowolo claimed that when rubbed, the talisman would enable Bill to trade mines with the fabled gorilla who wore a matching ring. And while Bill was skeptical, that claim was put to the test almost immediately after he found himself hopelessly trapped in an avalanche. Upon activating the ring, Bill indeed found himself looking at the world through the golden gorilla's eyes, while the gorilla's consciousness inhabited his human body. After using the gorilla's great strength to free himself, Congo Bill decided to use the ring's magic to battle evils of the jungle as Congorilla. Years later, Bill sent Janu to America to further his education, a move the great explorer came to regret. In no time, his ward, jungle boy turned yuppie capitalist, persuaded Bill to return to the U.S. in help him open a small industrial firm, one that in turn became a large conglomerate. To Jano's dismay, however, Bill found little satisfaction in the world of business that eventually turned to Africa. Preferring to live out his golden years in the body of the golden gorilla, Bill used the magic ring one final time before entrusting it to Jano for safekeeping. It was an unfortunate move. Recently, Janu's now unsavory existence has became threatened by an even more unsavory business rivals. Struck by a car and left for dead, Janu rubbed the ring in desperate bid for life. Now it is his consciousness that rules the Golden Gorilla while Bill's mind is trapped in Janu's shattered body. It is a situation that Bill will not tolerate for long. Hmm. 
What I like about this story is that it's truly a concise origin. It gives us a little bit of background as to who Congo Bill the adventurer is. It lets us know who that he is an experienced and respected adventurer in the area of Africa where he's working. It shows us the very first time he switched places with the Golden Gorilla. Not only that, but Tom Joyner takes what's back in the 50s is probably full of jungle cliches that are now really antiquated. And granted, I'm making that judgment call based on the portrayal of Jano the Jungle Boy in the first story I read in this episode. And he updates those in a way that isn't politically correct, but is more historically correct. If you're more, if you're familiar with the post-World War II history of sub-Saharan Africa, it's not some sort of Tarzan fantasy world. It's a very chaotic and it's very violent in some places, with several bloody civil wars taking place, a situation that has changed for the better in some countries and not changed at all for others. Bill refers to the area as Rwanda, spelled R-U-A-N-D-A, and if this is meant to be modern-day Rwanda, 1958 is the eve of the Rwandan Revolution, where tensions between the two tribes of Hutu and Tutsi boil over to the point where the Hutus begin killing the Tutsi on a massive scale, leading to 10,000 refugees seeking asylum in other countries. Joyner's script and Butler and Wilson's art reflect this very well, having Kruger there as a missionary and the tribesmen being part of a guerrilla contingent. If anyone is out of place, it's actually Congo Bill himself. But I get the sense by, by the end of the story, he realizes that. and He does not view himself as some sort of great white hope, which would have been more in place with stories from, say, the 19th century or maybe even the early days of comic books. Joyner paces this very well, using the assault by the gorilla on the gorillas as a bookend to the flashback sequence, and the tone of the arc was, is appropriately dark and moody. The origins of Congorilla are more mystical in nature than that of Gorilla City, and this reflects that very well, pulling it off in a way that I didn't think Infantino and DiCarlo were able to get 100% right in their quest to give us the whiz-bang science fiction in the first story if this secret origins issue. This, unfortunately, would not be the team for the Congorilla miniseries. Steve Englehart would be the writer, and Neil Vokes, who did the art on the Who's Who page and seemed to have a more cartoonish style, would draw that. Kind of curious to see what a series starring these characters and done by this creative team from this story would have been like, to be honest. But on to our last story, which I think is maybe called i mean it's officially listed as untitled if you look up mike's amazing world but there is a um what looks like a title at one point on a panel if you can read this spelled i-f-u-c-n-r-d-t-h-i-s it is the origin of the detective chimp our credits are mark badger art rusty wells script andy helfer plot and tardiness john costanza letterer Robbie Bush, colorist, Mark Waite, editor, John Broom, and Carmine Infantino, creators. Outside Earth's atmosphere, a spaceship approaches. Aboard is an alien named Wynad, surfer of the way on the waves of thought, who said that he's going to take a native's puny mind and alter it. His, import, his companion, K-Ram, scoffs at the notion, reminding him how many times he's already failed at this. They begin landing procedures and the landing gear malfunctions. We see that the ship is actually incredibly tiny and it goes flying into the mouth of a chimpanzee and down its throat, crashing in the stomach. 
After he and K-Ram get out of the crashed ship, Wynad continues to spout the same crap about being a surfer on the waves of thought. While tapping himself into the chimp's blood vessel, K-Ram frets over being marooned in his body because Wynad thinks that being a surfer on the waves of thought is more important than knowing, oh, I don't know, proper maintenance of your spaceship. They eventually reach the brain. Wynad begins jackhammering away while K-Ran looks out through the eyes of the chimp at a camp of anthropologists, within which one of them is lamenting the fact that the expedition did not go well, and now he'll never head the anthropology department. Two natives run through the hut screaming something about a monkey with the soul of a human. We see our chimp having drawn a very lifelike representation of a human head on the side of a crate. The anthropologist says, this is the find of the century. He makes an attempt to capture him. As he runs away, the chimpanzee thinks human thoughts, specifically faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings. He grabs a murder mystery out, out of the uh, off of a bookshelf in the anthropologist's hut, and then he reads that the next night in the jungle. The next morning, the anthropologist laments how the chimp's disappearance has destroyed his career. The chimp shows up and thinking, Shakus, and points to a passage in the book he was reading about an assistant trying to kill his boss to take his job. All as it is is revealed as Randolph, our anthropologist assistant, grabs a gun and pulls it on him. Why? Well, he wants a job. The chimp sighs and throws the book at him, literally, knocking Randolph out, and the anthropologist says that he's taking the chimp back to the States. Inside the chimp, Wynad and K-Ram have fixed their ship and they head out. Wynad is full of pride and K-Ram admits that, well, you know, he pulled it off. Inside the chip, they take off their helmets to reveal that they themselves are monkeys. Space monkeys! Detective Chimp has the shortest text piece in the uh, on the letters page of the Secret Origins issue. Here's what they have to say about it. Another anthropomorphic fave from yesteryear, Bobo the Detective Chimp, know the initials, first appeared in the Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog, number 4, July-August of 1952. A fondly remembered strip, this backup feature was scripted by John Broom and penciled by Carmine Infantino. An abnormally intelligent chimpanzee raised by Fred, by animal trainer Fred Thorpe, Bobo became into the care of a Florida sheriff named Edward Chase when Thorpe was murdered and Chase investigated. Bobo then became Chase's constant companion and unofficial assistant throughout the feature's run in Rex. And that's all about there is to say about that. Except if you stretch your imagination, you can actually make this oddball origin jibe with those stories from the 1950s. Really. My first read-through of this was, was a pretty quick one, uh, and I thought that this is the weakest of the three stories. Uh, upon rereading it, so I could write the synopsis, I thought this was actually on par with the second one, and the Gorilla Story City Origin was the weakest of the three. Mark Badger, the artist, is best known for being the creator of The Mask for Dark Horse, and uh, just prior to this had illustrated a four-part Martian Manhunter series, which came out in 1988. Badger's art is quirky and comical and matches the tone of the story very, very well. I like how this is a take on Fantastic Voyage, how the main scientist Wynad is pompous and pretentious to the point where he knows nothing about the ship he's piloting, and K-Rad kind of just, well, puts up with him. We get this boob of an anthropologist who really has the chimp 
fallen into his lap, especially after he figures out that Randall is after his job, and the chimp is already smarter than either of these guys. Detective Chimp is a character I first encountered during the run-up to Infinite Crisis, and he was one of the more amusing parts of the Day of Vengeance storyline. And overall, while I don't have an incredible amount to say about this story, I really liked it. Uh, it was witty in all the right places without to be too without trying to be too smart for its own good. In fact, it played with the genre a little bit, which was nice because after a while, when you've seen one smart mar- monkey meeting an anthropologist story, how many more smart monkeys meeting anthropologists do you really need to see? I still found all of this to be really fun. Gorillas and other primates have an important legacy at DC Comics, and I'm glad I was able to give them their due. Next up, coming out in exactly one week, I'm going to tackle the crime drama genre. Specifically, I'm going to look at the 1988 miniseries Cinder and Ash, which was written by Jerry Conway and illustrated by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. It's all part of a big podcast crossover celebrating Jerry Conway's career in comic books. So come back for that. And until then, thanks for listening and take care. Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at, affidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics. Ooh, yeah. Night tonight.